In this episode, we feature the work of three black female astronomers. We hope this will be just one in a series of steps to normalize and celebrate black excellence in astrophysics. If you'd like to learn more about black astronomers and the challenges they face in academia, check out the Astrobytes Black and Astro series. We hope you like the episode. Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study transient events like supernovae. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a second-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study planetary atmospheres. And I'm Melena Rice. I'm a third-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study planets and their environments. You're listening to episode 16, The Elementals. And today we're going to be talking about the elements, but not the elements that comprise the periodic table as the modern world knows them. No, we're going to be talking about the four classical elements that, as long ago as the 18th century BC, were believed to make up all things. And if you've ever watched Avatar The Last Airbender, then you know exactly what elements I'm referring to. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. That was beautiful. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> Guys, I, I have to confess, I never really liked Avatar. Oh, it was the only TV show that I ever actually bought episodes for on iTunes. So I was definitely a fan. Like individually, <laughs> you bought episodes. Yeah, I mean, I only bought two of wow. them. There were like two that I just thought were so brilliant. And I just watched them over and over. <laughs> How old were you at that point? I think I was like 13 or 14. I haven't watched them in a while, but it's back on Netflix. So I've been meaning to watch it again. Yeah, there's been a big like resurgence in enthusiasm for the show, and now that they're back on Netflix, yeah, that's a great it's show. It's one of those shows that you just like watch as a as a kid, and and it it connects you with all the people the same age, and then I think as adults, you know, people are kind of rediscovering that connection. Hmm. Hmm. Pokemon Go is the same way. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about how we watch TV now. And because so much TV comes out all the time and all at once, it doesn't, you know, there's no like syndication. So you don't kind of appreciate the, the mystery and talk to your friends about the suspense. Everyone just kind of, oh, I saw that last year. Yeah, I binged that the other day. It's, you know, it's just, it's, there aren't going to be these kind of cultural phenomena. I mean, maybe to some extent, but I feel like you're not going to have this connection that this was the show to watch at this time in life. Except with Game of Thrones. That was a big thing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. And, and with that... <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you kick us off, Will? Tell us a little something about water. Okay. So I read the astrobite called, What Do You Have to Do to Get a Water-Covered Planet Around Here? <laughs> that's such a good title. <laughs> this is a guest post written by Harriet Brettel, who is an outreach coordinator for the Planetary Society in London. And the paper that was summarized was by Omawa Shields and others, published in 2016. Now, when we talk about habitability or potential habitability of planets, water comes up pretty quickly in the discussion, because we believe it's necessary for all life here on Earth. 
Yeah, I've heard a couple of studies that have come out over the past couple of years finding animals that didn't need oxygen to survive, but I haven't actually heard that there are any animals on Earth that can survive without water. Right. I, I did look into this, and I really couldn't find anything. I did learn, interestingly, that a rat can go about a month without needing to drink water directly because it can extract moisture from its food. Hmm. So that's kind of huh. cool. But it huh. still needs water because that allows it to do metabolic processes and chemistry that can't happen otherwise. Right. So life as we know it requires water. And this paper talks about a planet that was discovered, Kepler-62f, so it's one of many planets in a system, that's in the Goldilocks zone, and maybe we wonder, does it have water? Right. And water is a potentially necessary but not sufficient condition for life. It takes a lot more than just being in a habitable zone to have liquid water as well, right? Right. Absolutely. And one of the first requirements that these authors wanted to understand was the orbital configuration of a planet because the planet has to be stable in its orbit long enough and the system has to be stable for life to have a chance to evolve. Now, when you say long enough, what kind of timescales are you referring to here? This planet, the outer planet in the system, orbits every 267 days. The authors wanted to verify that the orbit is stable over 1 million years. So they did some modeling to try to identify that. And what they were really looking for is how the eccentricity affects long-term stability. That is, how elliptical the orbit is. So uh, what do you think? What's your guess about how elliptical an orbit can get based on their calculations and remain stable for a million years? Well, if you're talking about orbital stability, you can, in theory, have orbits with very high eccentricity that are still stable. So like HD 80606b is a planet that I studied pretty recently, and it has an eccentricity of 0.93, and it's still stable. Although, you know, (laughs) how stable the atmosphere is is a different story. (laughs) Um, But also, this is, you mentioned this is planet F in its system. So that means there are five planets in the system, at least. And so it probably can't be very far from circular, right? Melina, we should also make the point, you alluded to this earlier, that we should probably make the distinction between orbital stability and climatary stability, right? Because I could imagine a stable orbit in the sense that it doesn't fly out of its orbit, but at the same time, you could have that planet be incredibly inhospitable. Like, for example, if the planet is tidally locked. Yeah, and we'll we'll get there. They do consider that. Uh, But the first kind of goalpost here was, is the orbit stable? And what they found is in this system, it's nearly 100% stability until about 0.33 eccentricity. And then it just falls off, and 0.35 is like 0% stable. Uh, and for reference, Pluto is 0.25. And Pluto has a, a quite elliptical orbit compared to the rest of the planets if you look on a, on a top-down view. Um, Earth is you know, less than 0.1, right? So mm-hmm. it's you know most planets orbit on circular orbits as far as we're aware, but it looks like it has to be you know, within the realm of, of reasonably circular to be stable. Yeah, that makes sense. So if they're looking at stability, then how long did they run that simulation for to figure it out? They ran it for a million years total, but the time steps were very short. The time steps were like uh, 0.06 years or something like that. Very short time steps, um, which I found surprising because I would have imagined that would have taken a lot of computational power. Right. Yeah, and you said earlier that the orbits are... 267 days for this outer planet so that's right 
that is covering quite a few orbits, so it sounds like it probably should be plenty to determine over long time scales um, whether it'll be stable. We were talking about like life evolutionary time scales, so I looked up exactly what could happen in a million years in terms of evolution here on Earth, and it turns okay. out Australopithecus went extinct about 1.7 million years ago. So it turns out a million years is enough time for a lot to happen in terms of evolutionary changes of life. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if an evolutionary biologist would concur with that. But I think this is just a starting point for, <laughs> for an analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So if the planet is in the Goldilocks zone and it can have liquid water and it's stable, it also has to have the right kind of atmosphere with enough pressure to support liquid water, right? Or otherwise it'll just be, like, frozen or vaporized, even if it's, like, in this nice zone around the star. Right. Yeah, because you need pressure to have liquid water. You can't have water without uh, pretty high pressures. And if you look at a phase diagram of water, which is maybe something you would see in a high school chemistry class, you realize that if you bring liquid water up to space, it's, it's going to boil away or it's just going to freeze and become a rock forever. So they, the preliminary finding was the orbital stability, but the real meat of the paper here is doing a climate model, what they call a general circulation model. And the idea with this is to ask the question is, is how does orbit affect climate in a detailed way? Okay, so is this general circulation model just a black box, or do you know more about what's going on internally? I don't know exactly how they applied it, if they picked it apart, I think they used a well-accepted uh, GCM and just changed the input parameters. But very briefly, a GCM is an incredibly robust climate model. These have been developed for Earth for decades. And they divide the Earth's atmosphere into cells in 3D space. So you really get full dimensionality. And then they calculate the state of a cell. For instance, its pressure, its temperature, the wind direction, the wind speed, and so on. And then they run one time step. So in this case, it was, it was pretty quick time steps, but they run one of them and the cells kind of interact with each other and the pressure changes and they recalculate what the new pressures are and they do it again. And so this is a real, real high intensity climate model. You wouldn't just apply this willy nilly without a goal to get detailed and specific measurements. And it's also a feat of engineering. So I have to go off on a tangent just for a second. Go have for it. either of you ever heard of Lewis Fry Richardson? I can't say that no. I have. So he was a meteorologist in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And whenever people talk about cells within climate models, I have to bring him up because in 1922, he wrote about this theory that he had that maybe someday people would invent a massive room, like this massive grand auditorium where you paint on the walls different regions of the earth so that the entire circumference of this room maps out the entire surface of the earth. And you have people filling the room and each one is responsible for calculating a piece of the weather at that one location. And they signal to all the people around them. And in doing that, they're these computers in this big climate model simulation. Wow. Yeah. And so in 1922, he said, and I quote, after so much hard reasoning, may one play with a fantasy? Imagine a large hall like a theater, except that the circles and galleries go right round through the space usually occupied by the stage. The walls of this chamber are painted to form a map of the globe. A myriad computers are at work upon the weather of the part of the map where each sits, but each computer attends to only one equation or part of an equation. 
The work of each region is coordinated by an official of higher rank. Numerous little signs display the instantaneous values so that neighboring computers can read them. When he uses the word computer, he means a person in this context. He means people, exactly. Right. This was 1922, many, many years away from even the most primitive computer. This really reminds me of like the philosophy idea of like, can a lot of different organisms make up one larger organism? I think it's like the homunculus idea where like Whoa. we are made of cells like we are made of living beings but we also are living beings it's just like a very interesting philosophy question that this brings to mind <laughs> wow it's like an emergent property discussion right where yeah you, know, you don't see something at the cellular level you don't understand thought but you have to zoom up to the full person level to see what thought is even though at the cellular level you can see you know electrical impulses they don't mean anything until you zoom out mm-hmm it's like an ant colony, right, can do a whole thing, but an individual ant, you, you know, you don't know what it's doing until you see the colony. Right. So all of us together could perhaps make one larger living being computer weather simulator. Who knows? Makes you wonder if a podcast is, in fact, a living being. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> well, that was a really cool aside. <laughs> um, but yeah, getting... Thanks for sharing, Alex. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> But I guess getting back to the global circulation model, um, it does sound like they have a lot of knobs to turn. And so what does this paper specifically focus on? Uh, one quick thing. It's general circulation model, not global. A uh. lot of people get that one wrong. I mean, people say global climate model, which you would think is actually the right words because it describes it better. But it's general circulation for whatever reason. Mm. Um, that's yeah, where it came my from. Bad. <laughs> Thank you for correcting <laughs> right. that. Yeah, I think both are now accepted at this point, but it is general circulation. That's where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so what were they tuning in this model? They wanted to understand how CO2 level, eccentricity, obliquity, that is the tilt of the planet, and the rotation rate all affect the climate. Ooh, that's super exciting. Dynamics plus climate. So mm. what were the major findings? What they found that if we assume that the planet would have an active carbon cycle, then it's better to have high CO2 and high eccentricity within the stability limit. So up to that 0.33 before things get a little funky. And if you have low CO2, that means you're not going to have a large greenhouse effect. So it's not going to warm up the planet a lot. But if you have high obliquity, that is, if you tilt the planet at like 60 or 70 degrees, so the poles are facing nearly directly at the star, you can heat it up even with a low greenhouse effect. So the obliquity is what controls the seasons on that planet, right? So right. potentially now we're saying that summer would be habitable and winter would be uninhabitable? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, because you're pointing directly at the sun the entirety of summer for however long that is on this planet and then away for the entirety of winter. And in summer, you would be able to heat up the, so you get enough of a greenhouse effect and in winter, it would, it would really disappear and you'd lose a lot of the atmosphere. So I, I don't really know how that would work out. So where does this work go from here? Do they like propose ways to actually figure out better constraints on all these parameters? Well, I think this was a very early effort to constrain a lot of complex issues and in searching for habitable planets at, at this stage it's still a lot of population statistics a lot of you know earth centered models applied to other planets and by one count we have found 132 planets in habitable zones but like we've said that's kind of a low bar i mean it's it's not compared to the thousands 
maybe close to 10,000 planets that exist, you know, at this point, but relative to what we need to get to life, it's not, it's not a lot to just be in the habitable zone. There are many steps to come. So I think we really are going to have to get better at using other metrics to confine habitability, understand those metrics. And we're still, you know, stabbing around in the dark, really. Mm. There's going to be a lot of, of work coming out, a lot of publishable results like this that are kind of like hand wavy, great models, but we don't really know exactly what to do with it. Here's a result. It's going to be some time, but then you'll see a change to more pointed and targeted publications. That's my guess. Hmm. Yeah, it does sound like an incredibly difficult problem to tackle. But at the same time, think about how quickly the field is moving. Like you said, I mean, 95, the uh, the first quote unquote habitable exoplanet was detected or... 95 the first... was the first planet at planet all around, around a sun-like sun -like star. star yeah wow. yeah because there were planets around pulsars that were discovered earlier right yes those are very likely not habitable but also 51 peg from 1995 is a hot jupiter so unless there's like weird life floating in the atmosphere which like who knows maybe it's possible it's probably not habitable <laughs> Well, before we get philosophical again, <laughs> Wait, know, one, you... before we move on, one quick thing I thought about this. Uh, mm -hmm. 1992 was the first Kuiper Belt object discovery, if you don't count yeah. Pluto, because we didn't know about the Kuiper Belt when Pluto was discovered. So it's really interesting to think that we are learning about the outer reaches of our solar system as we learn about other planets at almost the same sort of a timeline there. Yeah. Hmm. There's a lot of discovery to be made really close to home and really far away, too. We don't know much at all about the universe. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, Melina, why don't you move us on to the next uh, element then? <laughs> well, I'm not going to be talking about the Earth, capital T and E, but I am going to be talking about Earth. Uh, so, <laughs> so the asteroid that I'll be talking about is called Best Exoplanet De Destinations for Mountain Climbers by Sonjana Curtis, and it's about a paper by Moya McTeer and David Kipping. And the paper studies how detectable topography on exoplanets is. That is, it's looking at whether we can observe if mountains and other types of terrain exist on planets around other stars, um, something that they coin exotopography. An important note here is the difference between topography and topology, which I know because I made this mistake in class many times, as did many of my classmates, and it was kind of a running joke. Uh, topology is like the mathematical study of closed surfaces, and topography is a study of features on a planet. So if we say topology in here, we mean topography. <laughs> they sound so similar. It's really easy to get mixed up. There's also tomography <laughs> oh, that I no. studied in undergrad, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that's also relevant. <laughs> in any case, Milena, that's a super interesting question, exotopography, and it's wild to me because we were just talking about how 95 the first planet was discovered right and i don't know i feel like we generally operate under the assumption that planets are these perfectly spherical things floating out in space but of course we do know that our own earth has mountains volcanoes and valleys etc so why wouldn't other planets have them as well mm -hmm. how would it be possible to obtain exactly that level of detailed information about another planet well, first of all, you need a rock star system, like mm -hmm. literally. <laughs> so <laughs> gas giants don't have terrain. They're going to probably be better approximated by spheres. 
Um, so you really need to have a rocky planet to actually look for this terrain. All right, I'll give you that one. That was a pretty good one. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> what, else, what else do you need, Melina? <laughs> and your planet also needs to have an associated host star. So that's the star in the rock star system. It can't be free-floating, at least using the methods explored by this paper. So once you have your rock star, you need to learn more about it using photometry. So you collect photons from the star. Call a scientist the paparazzi, so to speak. You need to take pictures of your favorite rock star using your favorite filter. <laughs> I'm assuming you don't mean an Instagram <laughs> filter here, Molina. More like a cousin's eye filter. Nice. <laughs> See, I've always wondered what Mick Jagger looks like in a Johnson V filter. <laughs> that what keeps you up at night, Will? <laughs> I have deadlines. Got to get those photometry pictures into the local magazines. Um, one of the primary ways to study exoplanets is using this photometry, and specifically using transits, where you study how the light from a star is changing as an orbiting planet passes in front of it. So given that the planet is generally going to be pretty dark relative to the star, this method directly measures the silhouette of the planet relative to the disk of the star. So if the planet has some bumpy terrain on it as it rotates during its transit, then different features will appear and reappear, leading to a scatter in the transit depth. Wow, that sounds so hard. Some of these planets <laughs> we can barely detect as is. And with all the, you know, the, the static and the noise, sometimes you can barely make out that the transit even occurred. So you're saying you can get like little tiny changes in the starlight due to like mountains? Yeah, I've I've heard that the Earth would be as perfectly spherical as a cue ball if it were shrunk down to that size because the changes on its surface are so small relative to the diameter of the planet itself. Yeah, so it's definitely a very tricky observation, but, you know, just, again, detecting any of these planets in the first place was also really tricky. And so um, what the authors are doing is basically exploring, is this something that even will be possible within the coming decades? And to figure that out, you can consider how bumpy different planets and other rocky bodies in the solar system are, and then simulate those objects in other systems and try to figure out if it would actually be detectable. And so to quantify this bumpiness parameter, the authors figured out the standard deviation of the radial distances from the center of a planet to every point on its surface, um, and they use this to quantify how much scatter there would be. So then how bumpy are the objects in our solar system? And is that scatter observable when it's put in the context of exoplanets? It might be, actually, with future generations of large telescopes, like the 39-meter extremely large telescope. So right now it's not observable. Um, but the authors in this work simulated the transit light curves of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the Moon. And they did find, first of all, that a higher bumpiness parameter corresponded to higher scatter. Uh, but you would need some really great photometric precision to actually directly observe that scatter. And the planet also needs to be observed at a couple of different rotational phases. So this method doesn't work for, for example, tidally locked planets. That is really impressive that it could be detectable in our lifetimes and with the technology that is currently in the works. Mm-hmm. So what do we need to watch out for to make sure we don't misinterpret our observations if, say, two decades from now, we are looking at mountains on exoplanets? 
Well, there are different sources that could lead to false positives, so we need to make sure we're also considering stellar pulsations and flares, as well as potential exomoons in those systems. Uh, you can also get false negatives from anything that reduces this scatter, so like dense clouds or oceans or obliquities. Um, but our ability to measure a lot of these possible sources of confusion is also improving, so it's possible that by the time these observations are feasible, we might actually have a better grasp on correcting for all of these different sources of noise as well. Sounds like some pretty earth-shattering research. <laughs> when... Or you might even call it terrific. Perhaps even oh groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and with that, we should definitely move on to the space sounds of the bi-weekly Fortnite for Science of Astronomy will play us home. Okay. Ready? A man was sitting on his porch, enjoying the, the sunlight on his face, when suddenly he was blown backwards out of his chair, and he felt as if his whole body was on fire. He was 40 miles away from the center of this explosion. Okay. I get a feeling that this was not actually observed from space. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't observed at all in that matter, actually. Okay. Is it related to the four elements of this episode? It is related to the fire element. Okay. Ah. Because there was an explosion and a massive fireball. And it's space related. It's, was, it's space related. Was there an explosion at like NASA headquarters or something? <laughs> Maybe I didn't play the best part of this clip. Was some struck by lightning? Was somebody like nearby when an asteroid hit Earth or something? Yeah, that's actually it. Really? Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Our first victory <laughs> in the space sound terrain. I mean, there were very few people around because this was in Siberia in 1908. Wow. It's the Tunguska uh, event they call it. And nobody really knows exactly what happened because the next part of this video goes on to explain that it took 20 years before any scientists were actually able to venture into the Tunguska River Valley to see if there are any remnants of this thing. But it destroyed, by some estimates, 80 million trees. Wow. I mean, this was, an in, this was the largest asteroid impact in recorded history. If it Jeez. had struck over a populated area, it would have right, wiped out an entire metropolitan area. We're lucky it happened over Siberia. That's terrifying. It is. And the reason I bring this up is because I happened to write an astrobite this past week about this event and a paper that was studying it. So it was on the forefront of my mind because I hadn't even heard of it. And it turns out there are a lot of mysteries around this. And the paper investigated a new approach to understand exactly how it would have gone down and, and what might happen in the future with another asteroid impact. Why did it take so long for scientists to go in and explore it further? Is it just too terrible weather or something? I don't know exactly. It It's not exactly clear, but it might have been simply that um, plenty of people, you know, went there, but scientists with equipment on an expedition took a lot of interest that, that wasn't there mm -hmm. initially. Hmm. Or it may have been dangerous, in fact. I was about to say, I would also wonder if in the early 1900s, they have no idea what kind of, like, if you could get radiation from this or, like, what the long-term effects would be. 
Yeah, I, I don't really know exactly why it took so long, but yeah. they really found almost nothing. The asteroid did not hit the ground because there were almost certainly did not hit the ground because there would have been a massive crater or at least some debris. And we found none of that. Oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. Well, if you've watched Avatar, then you know that there's one very important element that we are saving for last. Air. Is it, is it air? <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is air. Woo. <laughs> All right, Alex, let's talk about air on the air. What research do you have for us today? <laughs> well, I'm going to be talking about the air, not on an exoplanet, but on Titan, one of Saturn's moons. And to do this, I enlisted the help of a friend of mine who works on exactly this. Hello, my name is Ashley Walker. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am a current NASA intern at NASA Goddard uh, Space Flight Center. I asked Ashley how she first got started with Titan and what we currently know about this incredible moon. I actually initially started off doing planet formation and somehow I just slammed into Titan. Um, and Titan has been my baby for the last two years now, two going on three years. Um, I work on um, its atmosphere um, previously I actually defended my senior thesis looking at its aerosols and its aerosol particles, understanding what possibly could be the haze or and or um, other things in the surrounding atmosphere of Titan. And Titan is very, very, very complex. We know that it has this really, really thick atmosphere and it's it can be a jerk at times. So we <laughs> want to understand more about uh, Saturn's moon Titan and how is it similarly to our Earth? And it'll help us understand earlier. Wow. I always love hearing about Titan research because I also have a special place in my heart for Titan. Um, and so this is definitely one of those questions that we can really only understand with a combination of experiments in the lab and direct observations, right? Yeah, this is definitely the, the vibe that I got from Ashley about it. And I wanted to know a little bit more about specifically what observations we have of Titan. And luckily, Ashley told me about that as well. When we look at Titan, right? So we know that it has a thick, thick, thick nitrogen atmosphere, right? From what we know from um, observations looking at Cassini. Cassini space mission yes. uh, was between NASA, ESA, and the Italian Space Agency. It explored Saturn and its system, its rings and its moons yep. as well. You're saying yep. it gave us lots of information about Titan's atmosphere as well and the haze. Right. It okay. gave us, yeah, it gave us a lot. It gave us a lot. The Cassini Williams gave us a lot of things that it suggests that the atmosphere is extremely thick. So it also lets us look at like, there's different like layers of haze and so one thing that we want to know, as, as I stated previously, is it's like early Earth. So it's like the beginning stages of like mid to beginning stages of where we were. So I was so me looking at the prebiotic molecules, looking at the beginning stages of what could possibly be something that can give us life. So we know that it has a bunch of hydrocarbons. We know that it has ethane and methane. One thing that we also look at, um, me specifically, I look at tholins, right? 
And so Tholins are like, they were coined by uh, Carl Sagan. Um, it's like mud, it's Greek for muddy, thick, it's reddish color. And so which gives it, which gives us that glow, that reddish, hazy glow. I've so never we, heard of these. Yeah. This so, is so cool. So when we think of haze, right, you want to think of stuff that's like, oh, I can't move around and I can't get through. And it, you know what I'm saying? Just this thick, thick, thick layer that comes from atmosphere. It's like in a mix of like fog-ish type of things. And that's what we want to think of when we think of haze. We also are learning about the ionization and dissociation of the molecules that can make and break, which gives us um, its haze and its haze color. In addition to all of these components, as I mentioned previously. Haze in planetary atmospheres is a very interesting topic because it not only vastly changes the chemistry and the processes, but then it affects the temperature and the pressure structures, offers unusual heating mechanisms, has implications for life and evolution. And Titan's just really got it all, hasn't it? Yeah, geez, she really suggested that there's just a litany of different molecules bouncing around and processes that influence the uh, atmosphere. It's got to be horribly difficult to study. Yeah. But exciting all the same, right? That's true. Fascinating. And it's great that Titan exists in the solar system because it's sort of a perfect lab experiment in itself that you can then try to simulate and understand other worlds that would exist out there. Well, as far as we know, there are only two moons in the solar system that have atmospheres, the other one being Triton of Neptune. Hmm. So it, it's it's a rarity to have a moon. We have a lot of moons in the solar system, but very few have atmospheres, and very few have like cool atmospheres. Triton's is pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> but well, but not only that, but Melania, you touched upon it being this perfect kind of uh, lab experiment of what could happen in an atmosphere and. Ashley kept alluding to this, that Titan's atmosphere could be a perfect analog for the atmosphere of our own planet much earlier in its evolution, right? So I asked her to elaborate on exactly what the two systems, Earth and Titan, might have in common. Obviously, there are still questions that we want to understand about early Earth and like its evolution and so on and so forth. And so when we look at Titan, Titan is similarly like that. And so we, it's the only atmosphere that we know of currently that is like ours. You know, it also has a polar vortex. So go huh. ahead and yeah. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so so you're, saying, you're saying classes on Titan were canceled last year because of the polar vortex? Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> I have also heard rumors. Tell me if this is true or if this is not, because I have no idea. <laughs> that there may or may not be a subsurface ocean on Titan as well? That's one of those things where we want to find out because we want to look at these oceanic worlds and see what could possibly be there because we know that um, Titan has, um, has methane and ethane lakes and it also rains there and it also has a rainbow. And so, yeah. And if there are you, rainbows if, on Titan? There are rainbows on Titan. And I heard my former advisor say this, so I'm copying what she told me. <laughs> so if you take two cardboard boxes and put them on your arms, Titan is so dense that you can fly. But it's really cold, though. It's extremely cold. 
I but must, you like, can fly. I'll, I'll bring a jacket and two cardboard boxes if, if yeah. I'm going to be able to fly there. That's amazing. I know. We can't fly here, but we can fly there. <laughs> so, we're, you know, it, it, it's so similar to us, and it has these organic molecules. And so we look at the – we use the um, Miller-Urey experiment, um, as an example, to understand what prebiotic molecules could possibly be in space in these different atmospheres. And so um, this, they will just, you know, these will typically be um, rich in like hydrogen, carbon dioxide, um, um, nitrogen dioxide, other molecules similarly to that, that will give us like hints of what prebiotic molecules could be on Titan and could possibly hold the key to what early life, early Earth looks like. You said your research in the past was focused on recreating this historic experiment that was looking at the formation of prebiotic molecules in the lab. Mm -hmm. And you set that up with more Titan-like conditions? Uh, yeah, so we were, yeah, we were more so looking at aerosols. And so we wanted to see um, how, um, what, functional groups could come out of that. And so if you took organic chemistry, Jesus Christ, the Which worst. Which I have not. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you took, <laughs> if you took organic chemistry, you um, would know that we were, we were looking at, um, we used um, infrared spectroscopy and we used um, uh, FTIR, which is a Fourier transform spectrometer to understand what functional groups were placed there and trying to understand it and so that was something that I did for my senior thesis defense and um going forward just understanding how complex Titan can be because I now know the Titan can be a jerk although it's my baby Now, this is a delightful interview. Ashley is so excited about Titan, which really just makes me excited about it, too. The rainbows and the flying, that's the amazing. The rainbows, there are rainbows on Titan. I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know that one. I, that's really quite something. You can tell how personable she is in this interview as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, one of the recent uh, missions that NASA greenlighted is is the Dragonfly mission to go to study Titan in greater detail. It's going to be, uh, you know, quite an exceptional and, and engineering challenge. So what does she think about that? Is she ready to, to analyze some of that data? That's a great question. Let's ask her. Obviously, we're, I'm excited about Dragonfly. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so can, you, can you talk about what Dragonfly is? Um, Dragonfly is a up-and-coming space mission through NASA and Johns Hopkins APL. The Dragonfly mission will launch April 2026. And so I'm really, really excited to see this um, rotocopter lander take off and just do amazing things. And so I was very, very excited when I first heard about it. And so um, Dragonfly is also going to study, you know, the habitability and also the prebiotic chemistry that is there as well. And so um, I was very excited when I first heard about it, I, although I'm not working on it. I wish I was. Um, I was very excited when I first heard about it, and I was just like, when they were having the little count, um, the countdown, and seeing which two um, missions, it was um, also Caesar, which is um, um, a comet sample return mission, that was 
you know, going down to the final draw, I was confident and said Dragonfly was going to win. I knew <laughs> the entire time. I was right. That's <laughs> <laughs> something to put on the CV. <laughs> right. I'm putting it. Look, listen, that is on. Listen, it's going to be on my Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So I was really, really excited when I saw that that happened. And I'm really excited for everybody that will be working on it. Um, so Dragonfly is an NASA mission to go to Titan. Yes. It, they just, yeah, they, okay. they're now doing, um, they're actually looking for students. They're doing actually a, a calling for students to come and apply to work on it. And so right now, and so it's really, really exciting to see all these new space missions go on. And I hope that we continue going back to Titan because Titan is such a unique and beautiful place mm. that I hope we get to see Titan. I hope we get to go to, you know, different places. You know, I, I want to see something with Enceladus and obviously the Europa Clipper. So I like seeing these things with these icy moons. You tell just how passionate she is about the system. Yeah. Absolutely. Which you love to see. Yeah, it's so good. So, <laughs> so I have one final question for Ashley. I asked her if there was maybe a smoking gun that Dragonfly could identify that would point to life on Titan. Good question. Hmm. Thank you. But if you know anything about astronomy, you know that it's not that easy as one simple <laughs> smoking gun. So, Especially with life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So just listen to her response. Right now, we're still trying to understand everything that's there. Okay. And so... We're also looking, again, we're looking at atmospheres and mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to understand what other things could potentially be there. I'm, I'm really, really excited to see what also, what other molecules could have formed throughout mm -hmm. the entire process. And so um, we do know, like I said, we do know that they're, they're a bunch of amino acids. We know that they're hydrocarbons. So we want to continue continuously explore what um, else is there on Titan. Thanks very much for the interview, Ashley. And I should mention that Ashley is going to be featured on a future episode about uh, non-traditional career paths because she has had a very non-traditional career path in astronomy. Yeah, I look forward to hearing the second half of that interview. Yeah, yeah, I loved hearing this first half, so I'm really excited to hear the other half. And that is a very cool way to represent air. I'm much more interested in Titan's air than Earth's air. So Yeah, thanks, Ashley. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ashley. <laughs> and now let's move on to our one-sentence summaries. How about you kick us off, Will? Sure. If you're going to study climate on an exoplanet, you're going to need a really good model and a little bit of prayer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> Melina, what's your summary? If you've got a rock star exoplanet system and an enormous telescope, it may be possible to actually figure out information about the topography of the planet in the coming decades. Alex, what's your one sentence summary? I'm actually going to pass it over to Ashley for this one. Understanding, um, so I understood the aerosols that were on Titan. But this time, we'll get a, a very, very closer look with Dragonfly. Go Dragonfly. <laughs> awesome. There you have Go it. Go Dragonfly. Go Dragonfly. <laughs> and 
I think we've had enough discussion about philosophy throughout the episode, so why don't we just end it here? Go Dragonfly. That's our discussion point for the episode. <laughs> Woo! That concludes episode 16 of Astro Soundbites, The Elementals. If you want to read the two astrobites we talked about today, or learn more about Ashley's research, it's fascinating, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our fabulous episodes, check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>